would you care to discuss what your well, opinions the, are on the, that right becoming now? legalization is is actually like sounds like a bit of a hymn the legalization that's coming or a sort of a leonard cohen song or something <laughs> Too bad, too late with Mark Emery. Um, Mark, so I did a little bit of research, very little bit, because I wanted this to be kind of <laughs> organic. But um, your name has always been in uh, the ether in my world because I also partake in the devil's lettuce sometimes. Love that word, devil's lettuce. Right? <laughs> Me too. And I appreciate your contribution to the cause. You know, here's a brief thought I had. Okay. Um, that marijuana must be thought of by some as a bad thing because I notice all criminals in prisons have nicknames. Right, so it occurred to me that badass dudes have nicknames. Well, pot has fucking hundreds of nicknames, so it must be some badass plant, right? Uh -huh. Because, I mean, how many nicknames does parsley have? None. How many nicknames does lettuce have? None. Well, but, the, but weed is called lettuce. It's called, you know, the, all these different things, right? Spliffs, you know, and we got a million different things, Buddhas and mm -hmm. weed pot, can a million different things. So that shows you that pot is very badass because it has many nicknames. Yeah, that is a that is a thought. Just a prison equivalency there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. My nickname in prison was Prince or Canada. Uh, yeah. Because at Yazoo, I was the only Canadian, so that was a that was an obvious. Who one. called you the Prince of Pot, or was or was that a Howard Stern move by you? No, that started in 1995 when the Seattle Post Intelligencer wrote an article saying Canada's Prince of Pot has issues with prohibition. Right? Were you like the loudest advocate for it? Yes, and but also the most successful. And the reason for that was my Ayn Rand grounding. Is as soon as I arrived in British Columbia, I realized everybody here is kind of like quasi-communist, socialist, hippie type thing. And I just said, folks, this isn't going to do. You know, as long as we don't believe in money, as long as we put down money, as long as we avoid and eschew money and say capitalists dominate us and control us, we're never going to go anywhere. We've got to all become good capitalists. We've got to learn to make a lot of money. We need stores. We need media. We need products. We need pens. We need blown glass. We need weed being grown everywhere. And so this is what I came up with is my multi-pronged overgrow the government campaign where I taught everybody how to be in business, taught everybody how to open stores, how to grow weed, how to create our own media, pot TV, cannabis culture. I was doing all things by example myself. Mm -hmm. And I started selling seeds and I sold millions and millions of dollars. Seed. And then I started using that money for political subversion. I paid for ballot initiatives all throughout the United States in a, in a thing that's going to be one of the best chapters in my book, how me selling seeds to Americans got me millions of dollars 
dollars that I recirculated by paying for ballot initiatives throughout the United States. It was like mm. the most perfect form of subversion while it lasted. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, I go to jail for five years for that in the U.S. prison system. Yeah. But you know what? I'm so proud of sponsoring initiatives in Washington, D.C., Colorado, Arizona, Alaska, paying for class action suits against the U.S. federal government. I paid for our Supreme Court challenge here in 2003. I got help. I paid for the case that made medical marijuana legal, paid for the cases that made books and magazines about bot legal, all of which was illegal by the 1980s and yeah. early 90s. So um, I was having a lot of fun giving millions of dollars away and using it to fuck shit up and yeah. So was this like house money then that you just played with? Well, I always designed businesses that were lucrative. So even my mm -hmm. first business when I'm like uh, 11, 12 years old mm -hmm. in 1970, I, I, my first comic book catalog comes out on January 1st, 1971, selling old vintage Marvel comic books. And that was in a period where there was a tremendous inflation in their value. From the time I started in 1970, I would sell the first issue of Spider-Man for $150. And in my final catalog by 1975, it was up to $500. It had tripled in value in the space of four years. And all the other Marvel comics were going through a similar price adjustment. Now, of course, the Spider-Man Amazing Fantasy 15 I sold for four or $500 back in 1975 is worth probably a hundred dollars to $200,000 now, possibly, or some shocking amount of money. So I was in a very lucrative business, and then I parlayed that into opening a book shop still there today city lights bookshop in london ontario and that was a very value-added business too where i could discover rare and antiquarian books that i'd bought for a dollar that would be worth 10 or 20 dollars but the thing is i don't have a very consumptive lifestyle i don't really have any hobbies or anything that requires money so i've always given lots of money away throughout my whole life even recently when i had my shop on church street it was the busiest marijuana shop in the world believe me right. i was making a lot of money there. you said like upwards of 50 yeah, Jeez, yeah, 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 50 Gs. And so I'm, but I don't need that money. After I pay my suppliers and give generous bonuses to all my staff, I'm giving away money to Amnesty International, queer organizations, every possible one, two spirits, queer Muslims, 519 community center persons with AIDS, you name it. Amnesty International's campaigns in Chechnya, all sorts of good things. And that's what the money's for. I don't regard the money as really, it's my money, but I regard it kind of as with me in trust to use for good things politically or charitably or any number of things. I've always had a real gift for earning money and I paid all my taxes on my money last year too. Mm -hmm. So the money I earned at my shop, I paid the tax and I gave them all their HST, which is half a million dollars. And everybody, everybody always gets theirs when I'm doing something and uh, I don't need a lot for myself. I live in the village for 1500 bucks a month mm. in an ordinary apartment. I can't think of anything else I need. I've got Netflix, uh, don't need a car. Zipcar is awesome in Toronto. How does cars. it feel to give away that much money? Well, I gave 5 million away from 95 to 2005. And then in just six, seven months, Last year, almost half a million dollars in that six-month period. So it's great. It's wonderful when I see people who need money, whether it's people on the street, to be able to give $5 or to be able to give Amnesty International a couple thousand when they need it or for a campaign that comes up. I gave the BC Civil Liberties Association $250 this week. Um, I gave a journalist $1,000 for his great work. And, you know, to be able to do that is so 
good for me because, you know, all my life I've wanted to help all these people and sometimes it can and sometimes it can't. So it's nice to, when I see people doing good things and they appreciate that somebody acknowledges them, you know, because it's easy to pay lip service, but when people actually have to give up money that yeah. they could use to gratify themselves and that has some value. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, your relationship with money, you see it as Sorry, a it tool. sounds un-Ayn Randian because uh -huh. I tend to give it away. So people say, well, isn't that kind of a Marxist impulse or socialist impulse that you want to give money away? I said, yeah. no, that's a very selfish capitalist impulse. Uh -huh. A lot of capitalists give money away to, to selfish things that do good for all people. Carnegie set up a system of libraries across North America, which is still the cornerstone of our library system today. Vancouver and Toronto both have Carnegie libraries uh, that he paid for and built with his steel money, right? So he enjoyed doing that, and I think it's very selfish of me to be able to earn money and spend it in ways I see fit that happen to, you know, be politically relevant or charitably relevant. Is it hard to make a million dollars in Canada? No. If you want to make money... You just have to think of something you love to do that you really enjoy love doing, have a passion for, and then you just have to think, now how can I make money with that? What can I do that would take my passion and apply it in a way as to do the, a great job delivering something I love to do, right? So uh, let's pick something almost obsolete. Let's say you like toy trains, right? You love toy trains. Well, if you love toy trains and you have a passion for them, you will attract everybody else who loves toy trains too. So if you're somewhere and you're surrounded by toy trains and you're sharing your love and your passion for them and how much fun you have and how meaningful in the history of them, then everybody who's like that is going to want to be with you and going to shop with you or work with you or, you know, they'll want to work for you or shop at your place or something. Those people will want to be around you because they want to get what you got, that love, that passion. That energy. Right? And, that, and so you're going to make money. You're going to make money if you get into something because when you love it, it's not a job, man. It's just, it's, it's the be all and end all of your existence. And those people tend to be good at it and their enthusiasm is infectious and contagious and it's great for sales and it's great for a product and it's great for an idea or a belief system right i mean for someone to be successful at proselytizing on the street to christians uh to convert you're going to have to really believe it and have the you know and same with any kind of thing we believe in is if we are passionate and committed we're going to be good at it so are you saying um start a business well see i'm really good with like. people i love being around people i never get tired around people i'm an extrovert i'm naturally a retailer and so for me being in retail i love doing that when i was in a comic book dealer when i was 13 or 14 everybody i did the most business because i understood a at what point to sell up uh, an item at its optimum price or it's the best price you're going to get now and a variety of other things. And I immediately learned that you are good at business if you show passion and love for what you're doing because people who want to buy from that kind of person are going to gravitate towards you, right? And I think it's easy to make money if you want to make money. But see, I don't do something to make money. I do it because I love doing it and I think of a way that that will make money. Okay. Right, because it's not what will I, how, what can I do to make lots of money? It's what can I do that I love and that my passion will attract people to me like a magnet. Some I've never read it, but the book The Secret is supposed to tell people that. But everybody always says, "But Mark, you already know the secret, so you live it." Right? And I say, "Well, then it must be you have to have like total." 
passion and enthusiasm. But you got to also have to be intelligent too. Intelligence is the only thing you're not innately born with. You might be born with an adeptness to pick up knowledge, but you're not going to be intelligent unless you know what to learn, how to learn, and how to use knowledge, right? And how to be thorough. You know, you need someone to teach good habits. My father was really good at that, fortunately. Very wise person, my all-time favorite male person. He was this beautiful, wise man who rarely got upset with anything, um, which I certainly admire because he came through a very difficult time, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, World War II, the Depression, all that. Some ghetto in England where he had eight brothers and sisters. He, he, my father was a good swimmer. He told me he lied about his age so he could join the Navy, which is interesting. And I said, well... Why'd you join the Navy? He said, well, I wasn't a rich person's son, so I couldn't go to the Air Force. That was for the rich. He said, and I just remembered how terrible it was in World War I for people getting mowed down by machine gun fire, so I didn't want to be in the Army. So I was a good swimmer, so I lied and joined the Navy. I said, well, you lived in some urban ghetto in Birmingham, England by the HP Sauce Factory. I said, I know you never saw a swimming pool. He said, no, I never did see a swimming pool in my whole life before I joined the Navy. I said, so how did you know how to swim? He took a little pause and he says, well, I swam in the canals. Birmingham has canals. I said, well, what are canals, Dad? He said, those were the sewers where all our effluents went. And then it slowly got let out to the rivers and sea. I said, Dad, you swam in the sewers? He said, yes, I did. Almost every day I could. He said, and I was glad to. I could swim 10, 15 lengths of the canal on our street. And... Uh, he said, I guess they were the sewers. I guess they, you know, he said, but I just didn't think about it. And uh, he had lots of stories like that, you know. So, you know, it, it, people like that, my dad wasn't the kind of person that would get upset with trivial things. But exactly. one thing he taught me, if you're going to do a job, do it right. You have to know what you're doing, focus on doing it right, and then execute properly. He said, if you're not going to do that, then hire someone to do it that way. <laughs> and I learned that lesson because eventually when I'm 17, 18 years old, I buy an old house and it's a total money pit. And the time I own it, 13 years, everything goes wrong from I need to replace the sewer drain under the ground to the roof. A big tree falls on my roof and destroys it. The veranda collapses. The walls peel off the side of the house. Every possible thing goes wrong in the time I own that house and I either have to hire someone or do it myself. I usually do it myself and sometimes I do a bad job, sometimes a good job. And, uh, but I, I, re I reflect on my father's advice all the time that, uh, he's a very wise man. I'm lucky, you know, because when I treated hardcore drug addicts, um, uh, for hardcore methamphetamine and heroin and morphine and oxycontin addiction of the 65 people I treated, and I gave them this powerful African plant extract called Ibogaine hydrochloride stops drug withdrawal and drug craving right away. Wonderful opportunity for people to change their life. But anyway, I would, uh, I asked them, where are you from? You know, people came from all over North America to my little clinic because I paid for everything to do it. So an addict going through treatment wouldn't be required to pay any money. And anyway, they would say, I grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York or Canton, Ohio or something. And then the second question was the pivotal one, the very vital one. It probably taught me more about human existence than any other one observation I made. And that was after treat, after taking intake of 65 people over two years, 59 of them did not have their biological father in their life for all or part of their childhood. And this led them on a very dangerous and hazardous path. Not all the time, because I met addicts who said, but my brother didn't turn out this way. And I said, yeah, well, it's not all the time. But I said, I've just never met someone who said, yeah, I had two loving parents who were always there for me. And I went to 
a party one night and started putting needles in my arm. Now, I've never heard that. Never, never heard that. It's always the same thing. Um, I would ask them, I tried to unprompt them. I'd say, well, tell me what life was like with your mom and dad. And invariably would go, I never knew my father. He was gone when I was two or four, or he was in the military, or he died, or I was adopted at birth, or um, that my parents divorced when I was 12. In some way, the mail just wasn't there. And it was this thing that showed up. Now, the funny thing is, when we look at the impact a man has on his paternity, on his children, and you look at what a mother does versus what a father is. Well, I'll give you my example. Uh, My father was always home, and uh, like he went to work, right? And he'd come to me in the morning and said, son, have a good day. I'll see you when I get home. He's gone. My mom, though, says, okay, where, what's your name? Mark Emmer, where do you live? 519 Highbury. What's your phone number? 4515762. By the way, that's my actual phone number from 52 years ago. And I can remember it like clockwork. So my mother made me say it every day. She said, and what do you do if perverts or queers come to get you? That's what she said, right? She said, they try and kidnap me. I said, run away. Okay, now, where are your mitts? Where are your mitts? Where's your lunch mate? Don't go, don't avoid that bully that's down by Christ Street. Don't do this. Make sure you walk home and beware of that intersection down there. The traffic's really bad. My mom would go on and think of every bad possible thing that's going to happen to me. Mm. Every day, she's giving me all this advice. You know, what's your name? Give me the drill, right? Beware of bullies. Watch this. Wear these clothes. Make sure you don't forget your mitts. Going on. My dad didn't say any of that stuff. Mm. My mom's worried. And so my mom's doing like 90% of it. She's dressing me. She's waking me up. She's making sure I do that. And my father's just giving me that one confident son. I'll see you when I get home tonight. Have a good day. Right, and that's what I realized fathers did. They impart confidence. They impart backbone, right? Because when you got bullies, as a rule, if you're a male or female, you don't go to your mother over bullies. You go to your father because that's kind of like the brick wall in the house. That's the last line of resistance, right? If your father can't help you, who's going to help you, right? Dad, I'm being bullied or I've got this. And your father is the kind of person that gives you the confidence. At least if he tells you to run away, he's telling you to run away for... You know, because that's what I'd do. I'd run away, right? Or because they preserve yourself. And then you just come and tell me, right? And then we'll go and sort it out. Yeah. Right? Stuff like that. So when you don't have the father around and and you see other children with their father picking them up at soccer games or going to movies or doing whatever it is, all the things that fathers and sons and fathers and daughters do. But when that's not around, you have a kind of a bit of an acting out anger issue and the problem is you tend to gravitate to the other angry kids so you've got the other angry kids who've got a bit of problems and they're starting to hang out with each other this is a bad thing because their negativity their anger their frustration can lead to early experimentations with drugs sex gangs you name it any number of things people do to deal with pain that they're going through Mm -hmm. right so anyway these are all things that i learned treating hardcore drag addicts with my own money. I spent a quarter million dollars in that two years on that program. Just, I paid for everything, put them up, and they got the drugs and uh, the extract and had them stay, each one of them stayed with me for about a week. And that was some pretty amazing stories. What's your solution to that? What's a preventative measure? Well, you guys have to own up to their paternity. It's a hard thing to ask, right? Some 19, 20, 20 year old guy gets somebody pregnant. He has no fucking clue. He's just totally 
unqualified, inept to like be all of a sudden put everything down and become a father. Uh, we, it was a little easier to do that a hundred years ago, which is what we would have expected to happen. You'd get married, you marry the woman, you have the child, you, that's your wife from now on. Right. And, uh, but we don't do that. And, you know, people stay at home until they're 30 or something. Right. And, you know, my day, I left home at 17 to work in my store at the back of my store, which I actually paid for without anyone's help so you know clearly i had been brought up by people who said you know you should go get a woman and a job and be self-sufficient by the time you're 18 which was the year of being an adult so i was looking mm-hmm. okay i'm down with that program can't you know and i love my parents but i couldn't wait to live on my own and have my own things and live my own life and go my own direction even though of course i actually relied on my father a fair bit after that because i knew nothing about fixing houses so mm-hmm. he was constantly giving me advice as to what to do with my house but uh, you know other than that you know I, we were, our generation in the 60s and 70s kind of wanted to get out of the house, right? And yeah. could live on our own. Now people don't do that. And, you know, young men are hardly qualified to raise children and to be parents and fathers and stuff like that. But the problem is they're still fucking and they're still behaving in a situation, you know, in ways that are like totally like you're not preparing yourself for the future. So, I assure you. Spoiled brats, generations well, of spoiled but brats. Well, most. Listen, most people are spoiled brats because yeah. we can never fully sympathize with the difficulties our parents had. Like my dad went through the depression and starvation and swimming in dirty canals and and working at a motorcycle factory when he's 13 and lying to get in the Navy when he's 16, being shot at by Germans at 17. Yeah. Who fucking knows anything about that today? You know nothing about that today, right? Yeah. And then he gets out of World War II and uh, Europe's totally stagnant. Nothing's happening. So he has to emigrate to Canada in 1950 in order to start life again and raise children who won't be brought up in some, you know, restrictive class system, right? So these are pretty momentous things. I think I will leave all my family and everyone I know and go to the new world. You know, it's still pretty brave of some yeah. working class guy you know, like my father. So, you know, so I could grow up in this very wonderful and affluent society here. Yeah. Right. It, do you think Canada is anti-business? That's very that doesn't broad. matter. What it, You have to succeed in every environment. Mm-hmm. The job of all business people is to cope with the environment. This unfortunately creates compromises that is why a lot of people think business and government are in cahoots mm-hmm. because in order to thrive, um, business has to be adaptable. And in order to adapt, you've got to deal with whatever comes. Some taxes come and regulations come and the government man comes and labor laws come and, you know, NAFTA free trade or not comes. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world that a small businessman, a large businessman has to keep on top of. So I don't know if you can say a nation welcomes business or doesn't welcome its business. And all governments are corrupt and rotten and lousy and hard to deal with. And I hear all businesses say the same problems everywhere around the world. Too much bureaucracy, too much red tape, Mm -hmm. too many people telling you how you run your business, too many people telling you what you're going to pay, who you're going to hire, et cetera, et cetera. But if you've got a passion and you want to have a business, that means navigating whatever is thrown at you. So I couldn't answer whether Canada's pro-business or anti-business, but I have loved being a Canadian business people. And there is something to be said, and this is if you're having a legal business. Most of my businesses have flirted with either unusual, like rare antiquarian books, old comic books, value-added items that 
are not typical products or illegal products that are like marijuana and marijuana extracts and derivatives that have a premium on them. Mm. So I, I've, I've had a leg in the legal world and a leg in the illegal world for much of my life. So I'm probably the wrong guy to ask, but we do have contract law enforcement here and generally people deal in good faith. Mm -hmm. I was defrauded of all my money in Indonesia back in 1994 when I was foolish enough to build a big house on someone else's land in Indonesia, as I learned, you know, uh, typically white Anglophones um, in foreign countries don't really have that many rights. And so you'd be smarter if you're going to do anything involving land, businesses, property, to mm. do it in an area where there's contract enforcement. Mm. And that means in your home country, because you're at a tremendous disadvantage if you're uh, Anglophone in China and Anglophone in Asia and Anglophone in Latin America, where the contracts are going to be written in multiple languages, Spanish, I would say, Chinese. Um, you know why, you know why I ask that? Because that? Uh, I always compare Canada to the U.S. And it seems like the U.S. is more uh, pro uh, business. Well, they say that, but you know, I've never had trouble opening a businesses legal or illegal in Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least we have friendly fascism. They might put you in jail eventually, but they're not going to do like they would in the third world or Latin America or parts where they'll put you in jail immediately. Mm -hmm. And then you have to pay a bribe. See, we don't have that kind of corruption. That's a very, that's something to be grateful for that. We don't have to bribe elected officials. You know, we, we, in the drug trade, we do sort of have to bribe elected officials if you're in that part of it. Um, and in Quebec too, there's a lot of more corruption than the rest of Canada in certain areas, but typically a business person doesn't have to pay bribes in Canada. We don't have to, uh, work with the premise that our system is corrupt and that the bureaucracy is corrupt and that police are corrupt. We don't, I wouldn't say that. I, I would generally say, compared to the rest of the world, our institutions are not corrupt. They are not bribable. They are not the kind of... The, therefore, if they are not bribable, that means you have a fairly good level playing field mm -hmm. um, that everybody competes. Now, the rules, the regulations may favor people with a lot of money, and they will, because a lot of regulations require expensive infrastructure procedures that only well-heeled companies could take advantage of. But I would definitely say there's still opportunity for people of all economic strata in this country. The only problem is, is that Amazon poses such a threat to the old standby of retail, right? right? If you were a hustler, anybody who could hustle, respect the hustle, you know, then there's a job for you selling, right? Because you just got to figure out what you love and then you go sell that thing, man. You'll be good at it. Right. But if Amazon is going to turn us all into automatons in a massive warehouse and they're going to get all the business, right? Because the government's making a lot of mistakes. They're making us pay $15 an hour minimum wage. That's a disaster. Uh, exactly. Because somebody's got some massive warehouse in some state where they're paying $9 an hour and they don't even have to have a store, then those people are going to kill you competitively. Because you just won't be able to pay $15 an hour and have a bricks and mortar store and then compete with the people who are paying $9 an hour who don't have a store, who have already an overwhelming presence in the market in mail order, right? These are not good things. Don't be making people pay 15 bucks an hour. What you should be making is those people work harder so you're worthy oh, of more than $15 <laughs> an hour, right? Uh -huh. you're, you're not supposed to be working at McDonald's for the rest of yeah. your life. You're supposed to be working there for the first six months of your adult working career and then after you've worked at mcdonald's one year everyone else will hire you mm -hmm. like mcdonald's does everyone's training in the restaurant industry for you so if you want to work at starbucks or you want to work in a restaurant and getting tips and making decent money you start at mcdonald's
McDonald's and they train you and then you, everybody will hire you. If I see someone with at least one year of McDonald's on their resume and they still got that reference, I will hire that person right. over everyone else. Because like I say, you can't beat McDonald's training. That's why they pay minimum wage. So you get the training. That's what it's for. Nobody, after you've worked at McDonald's for one year, you should never work for minimum wage again. You're simply not doing the right thing because people will hire you in several industries. They'll hire you in the gambling industry. Casinos will hire people that worked at McDonald's. Um, restaurants will hire you. Salespeople will hire you. Because if you can smile all day long and say, do you want fries with that? When the stink of oil and grease is right beside you and that little bell is going beep every time an order is done all fucking day long, then you're going to be really good at some normal business. <laughs> So when I went to see you talk at the Students for Liberty conference, uh, you spoke about the legalization of marijuana, the coming legalization. Yep. Um, would you care to discuss what your well, opinions the, are on the, that right now? The coming now? legalization is is actually like, sounds like a bit of a hymn, the legalization that's coming or a sort of a Leonard Cohen song or something. <laughs> but the, the reason I pointed out is because the government's calling it legalization, but it's still really quite a criminalization. Um, in Ontario and Quebec, the government literally wants to usurp our culture, and we think of it as a culture. Um, after 50 years of oppressing us and arresting 2,400,000 and some odd 56,000 Canadians, a staggering number since 1966, they want to be the exclusive sellers of marijuana, the purveyors of marijuana. They want to be able to, to basically control our culture, take it away from us and call that legalization while still having everybody else with a dispensary arrested by arresting everybody who's growing, who's not a licensed producer. If you've got illicit cannabis, that didn't come from a government store. That's still going to be illegal. If you're 18 years old, 17 years old, that's illegal. You're supposed to be 19 to consume it. Um, if you're in the business, if you're an entrepreneur making edibles, making teas, infused creams, if you're growing marijuana, if you're making if you're making pens, um, all these different opportunities that have existed in the gray market or what I call the free market are going to be taken away from you. Now you might say, well, it's already illegal. How can it get more illegal? Well, oddly enough, it is getting more illegal. Right now there are seven criminal code or CDSA violations, right? Well, there's going to be 23 of them uh, after the law. So you'll be allowed to possess marijuana. And you'll be able to smoke it in your home, but you can't smoke it anywhere else, which is ridiculous. That's because marijuana is safer than tobacco. It's safer than alcohol. It's safer than your prescription drugs. People who smoke pot and drive are perfectly safe drivers. None of the hysteria that has surrounded this legalization is remotely accurate or true. Marijuana is safer than water. Walker, water and government approved water in Walkerton, Ontario killed eight people, which is eight people more than pots ever killed. So here you have, we, the, we in the black market have been supplying pot for 50 years. And despite the fact that hell's angels are involved and gangs are involved, many mom and pops are involved. People of all kinds are growing weed. We've never killed anybody in 50 years. Now that's incredible. Nobody else has that track yeah, record. Black market There's economy. no other industry that can say, Hey, in 50 years, We've never killed anybody. Nope, you can't say that. The automotive, automobile industry can't say that. The electrical industry. What about gang can't. members? Um, well, they've killed each other. 
But that's not an inherent problem with pot. Okay. It's the pot that's never killed anybody. People be getting violent over money, which is based on prohibition, not marijuana. So here's the thing. Every other industry is much more dangerous, from vehicles to machines to... Heck, you know what? One quarter of all known plants and foods have allergic potential that have killed at least one person. I was shocked to read the list of all the herbs you can get and grow in your home without any problem whatsoever that actually kill people or animals. Uh, poinsettia is being one of them. If you chew on a poinsettia leaf, you're going to die. If your animal chews it, and this is often a problem, they're going to die. But we don't put warnings on Christmas plants or anything like that. And that's far more dangerous than any pot plants ever going to be in your home. But it's like they regard it like plutonium. So this rollout it's going to have 13 different regimes, 13, diff 13 provinces and territories will have their own way for you to access marijuana. They're all going to suck compared to now. Um, it's, it's going to be, it's way better if you go to a dispensary in Toronto now. Um, I can suggest some addresses, but anyway, so... If you go to a dispensary now, you'll probably get six to 20 different kinds. And it's going to be awesome weed from British Columbia in all likelihood or Montreal. Um, you'll see a variety of pens, creams, teas, lotions, hash, edibles, and all sorts of great stuff, which none of which will be available at the government shops. And there'll only be about 40 of them in uh, Ontario opening on July 1st, and in Quebec only 15. You may have to drive three to 400 kilometers in Quebec to go to a government outlet. Could, couldn't uh, you see that coming, though? No, I, I, but I may have been naive. I'm all my life have been working for the premise that legalization means everyone who's doing stuff now is legal right? You will no longer be charged criminally. You will no longer be expected to be in the black market, but in the legal market. It would have been so easy. You wouldn't need any special training. Just the minister of health says marijuana has been removed from the schedule. So everybody please grow it um, and pay your taxes and uh, use all reasonable regulation. No retailer of any product objects to reasonable regulation, but the regulations they've come up with marijuana are most unreasonable, most unfair, most unjust, can't possibly be respected. If you want a law to be respected, you have to make it respectable. Why is it so arbitrary, these rules? Because government is behaving like marijuana was inve invented last month, and therefore, we have this new product that needs to have a regime. But in fact, marijuana has been on the market for 50 years, produced by a quarter million Canadians for about 5 million Canadians. It's a very sophisticated, advanced industry that's already, already complete. It's already done. All we need is our status change. So we are no longer a criminal enterprise. We are simply a legal enterprise. But we don't need the government usurping our culture and telling us who can grow and who can not grow and who can buy and where to buy. That's all bullshit. We're already doing all that. Now they want us to do it their way. We weren't doing it their way for the 50 years leading up to legalization. We're certainly not going to do it their way in, in the legalization. Aren't we going to be able to grow weed, though? Well, in Ontario... That's the stupid part. The federal government says you can grow up to four plants. Why four? I don't know. If, if it's morally okay to grow four, why not 400? What's, how does a number influence whether something is right or wrong? It's so stupid. Furthermore, not only can you make your own wine in your own home or hire someone to make your own wine. No limit. But you could buy a thousand bottles of wine and have your own wine cellar and have it like a giant wine you know, warehouse down there. You can start a vineyard. 
You can open a restaurant to serve wine. In other words, I am in no way forbidden from participating fully in the alcohol industry, whether it's a vineyard, whether it's selling wine in a restaurant, whether I have a wine store, whether I uh, make wine myself. In other words, every opportunity is open to me, an ordinary citizen, to be in the alcohol industry. I could open a distillery. I could have a brewery. I could have a microbrew. I could brew it in my own home. I can buy as much beer as I want and stack it to the ceiling in my home. There are no limits on all those things, but they have them on pot, which is much safer, much more something we should encourage. See, the government's afraid to encourage marijuana. They're going on like marijuana is a health problem. It's a health asset. It's six o'clock. Shut up. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. is healthy for you and we should encourage people to use it, not shy away from it. And that's what we're dealing with. And we're, one of the reasons, by the way, people shy away from, pot has five natural enemies. The five natural enemies of pot are parents, teachers, priests, policemen, and politicians. Squares. All people that demand unquestioning obedience in order for them to exercise their authority. So the first thing you do when you smoke pot is you talk back to your parents. And this is a problem for parents because they're all about do as I say, don't do as I do right? Because we're all hypocrites and some are more worse, worse than others. And, and kids quickly realize that their parents' authority is not derived from anything inherently moral. It's both, you know, this is just the way I want to do it and you'll do it that way because I'm your parent. Okay. So there you see the hypocrisy of that, that fails the litmus test for reason and logic and survives only because A, parents own the property. Okay. So B, the teacher, the teacher doesn't want you to say, when you say to him, as I did, Hey, everything in this textbook is government propaganda. It looks like government made the economy, government caused wars, government did this, government did that. Government seems to get all the success for everything as opposed to the ordinary struggling Canadian citizen who somehow managed to move this country rapidly forward just doing their thing, right? And so these government wars, why are we at war with these Indians? Why are we at war in Korea? Why are we at war in Iraq? And what is your authority, right? Why do you get to tell us this is what's important and true? So you start questioning your teachers. You start questioning your parents. Well, that gets you no amount of grief. You know, you're going to get grief for that. So then the next person you realize, you go to the priest, this is gobbledygook. These are fairy tales. This is all ridiculous. No reasonable person could believe any of this stuff in the Bible, right? Uh-oh, well, it's opened your eyes to that. Yeah. And then you go to the politician, you realize he's just trying to get you to conform and, and be like he wants you to be, some automaton. He's trying to take away your rights, trying to tell you how to live. And then you realize the policeman is the enforcer of all the other three, the enforcer right. for your parents, the teachers, and the politicians and the priests, right? He's the, he's the military, the muscle, the backup. He's the guy that cracks your skull if you don't give in, right? So then you get, then you finally figure it out. You're looking around and you say, I realize what a piece of fucked up shit system this is, right? Well, that's why marijuana is illegal. It's not illegal for any other reason. It's illegal because it awakens the free thinking instruments in your brain. It awakens free thinkers. It makes you criticize dogma like religions and government. It makes you question authority, all of which is why marijuana is made illegal. There's no other reason. And there never will be a reason. They'll never articulate that. A government can't say, we get rid of the free thinking citizens as the prime objective of all governments. That is the objective of government. Silence the free thinkers, silence all opposition, and demand conformity. Well, once you smoke pot, none of those things are going to happen, so you're permanently at war with all the establishment. 
Uh, do you regret endorsing Justin Trudeau? No, never. Listen, that was necessary at the time. Did I think Trudeau would fuck it up? Of course I did. I mean, the guy's an empty glass. He'll get filled up with whatever's around him. Um, you know, and he still has, his mother is, you know, mentally ill and his father was a mercurial tyrant. Okay. So he's got a synthesis of the two, whatever. Right. I mean, he's a likable enough guy. I mean, if that's important, but the thing is, it's not really important to me. The thing is, is my choices were the NDP, the Greens and the Conservatives. Well, we, the important thing was to get rid of Harper. He was never going to make any moves to our direction. Mulcair was too timid. At the time, decriminalization seemed like the less desirable option. And he himself wanted a royal commission, which would have taken a couple of years, which we'd, we'd be doing that now. We'd, if Mulcair had won, which something might be desirable, we would have a royal commission right now, finding out essentially what the task force found out. Now, royal commissions are rarely ever paid attention to. That drug task force was loaded with people who are now working for those medical marijuana companies and stuff, so that was corruptly done. And, I mean, the government uh, put a narc in charge of the legalization program, Bill Blair. I mean, this is simply the worst possible thing you could do, is put a former cop who's been spreading propaganda and lies all his life, now he's in charge of legalization. So you could see that was going to go off the rails, but it doesn't matter. Because governments never give you freedom or liberty ever. There's no government that ever repeals its bad laws. They don't give you freedom or liberty. We have to take it from them. So we need somebody doing something so that we can go to court to oppose it, so that we can get charged and defeat them in court, or so we can win in the court of public opinion. And right now, uh, we have a terrible legalization rollout, but excellent political times for change. Because there will be hundreds of challenges to all 13 of these jurisdictions. Many of them will not survive court scrutiny. Many of them are completely illegal, like zero tolerance, like you can't have any nanograms of THC in your blood or you're going to lose your license for 90 days. That's illegal. That'll get struck down immediately. And there's a zillion other things that'll get struck down. The idea of that you can have legal pot, like from an LP, but if you have it from some other source, it's illegal. Is, is None there... of this will survive scrutiny. It's all stupid. It's all unnecessary necessarily bureaucratic and unjust this is gonna affect so many people's lives like unnecessarily well the pursuit of liberty is always that that's all liberty is oh. we nobody gives you liberty you have to take it it requires inconvenience it requires sacrifice and it requires some a few really good people to do the right thing at the right time for everybody else so martyrs are necessary to well change the and, and it's worthwhile being a martyr too because believe me the cannabis culture is going to live on for thousands and thousands of years to the ends of time. And the people who put forth the effort to make uh, our culture free are always going to be looked at. Jack Herrera is always going to be a giant and a genius of our movement. What did he do again? <laughs> Because there's a, I used to smoke. All Jack right. Well, Herrera that was a millennial putting me in place right there. Um, <laughs> Well, to me, Jack Rare is the most important person in our movement because he wrote the seminal book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. He was an American activist in the 70s and 80s when there was virtually no activism. And he went around and got arrested many times and went to jail and gave lectures and stuff and started a pamphlet that became a book that showed that the history of cannabis was enormous history that's been hidden from us, uh, that it was, it's been in America for hundreds and hundreds of years, Canada too, since the 1600s 
1800s. It has a glorious history that's been suppressed and hidden from us and is involved in all our past bookmaking and flags and sails and rigging and ships and navies. Wars, wars have gone on because of cannabis, right? Yeah. And yet at the same time, cannabis has almost always been cultivated by slaves, whether a slave on the on the Siberian steppe and Ukraine or Russia or the 13 colonies, black American slaves growing cannabis or in the ancient period in Mesopotamia when slaves grew it because uh, cannabis was labor intensive. And uh, the sad truth about most human history is that up till very recently, we've been enslaved everywhere, black, whites, you name it. Uh, you're a slave to the Lord, slave to the master. Uh, most people were not free in our culture, and most of our ancestors lived their lives as slaves. So is it natural for human beings to be free? Well, work. we want to be free. We often don't know how to be free. Um, and we have a lot of competing impulses in society. On one hand, you know, we're free to make decisions, say things, think ideas. And on the other hand, there's an immediate pushback whenever people do those things, right? It's a lot to be able to cope with. You know, if you say the wrong thing on social media, you can have a mob of a thousand people saying some pretty horrible things. People say things on social media they would never say in person yeah. and threaten things and impugn things. And people are cruel about other sexuality their points of view um, and it's easy to join a mob that's what you always find it always has been easy to join a mob but now the mob exists in social media in the old days you used to have to go out in the street get really drunk get a torch and threaten to hang someone kill someone burn someone out well that required you to act in a fairly bad anti-social manner but metaphorically we can achieve that with much less effort now with every miscreant behind a keyboard wanting to go and inflict some pain on somebody it's easy for them to join a mob so that's the more mob modern mob we're seeing. That's the kind of thing that silences people or makes rational perspectives harder to find because there's such a currency in abuse now. Yeah. You know, Ricky Gervais might have been right. We might have peaked out as a civilization in 2015. He, says, he said the last two years are showing a kind of a decline that he thinks is going to continue. But he says from 1965 to 2015 was a pretty awesome 50 years. He said, you know, uh, atheism in, in increased, uh, people's belief system in fairy tales diminished, uh, the overall wealth of the world went way up, far fewer people live in poverty, clean water is more readily available. So many awesome things going on and then social media has come along to kind of ruin it all yeah you think set us back yeah because the the greatest punishment in the bible is reserved for those who gossip and the reason for that the reason gossip was more dangerous than any other deadly sin is because if you went along the village and you said hey the people from the next village over there those people the other people they raped one of our women what sons of bitches let's go get them now i might be saying that and by the time you find out that isn't true we're gonna have a hell of a lot of trouble because you're gonna go over either rape their women or kill somebody or do some crazy shit based on something i said that wasn't true because i've got i want to cause trouble i want to believe me it was as in the ancient period, gossiping was as dangerous and deadly as it is today. Mm -hmm. And if you said that today, people would go do some crazy shit if they believed it was true. And in the old days, you could get a whole village to warn another bit before everybody found out that that wasn't true. It's just too late. There's been a slaughter. And now yeah. we've got uh, decades of bad blood ahead of us because of something, some stupid thing somebody said. 
right? Now, a lot of grief in life is caused by people who said something stupid, maybe even mostly men, more men than women. Men say, men being the sexual initiators, the guys that have to be arrogant or pushy or persistent or forward or what, fill in the blank in order to be successful in their career and or with women as they think, um, they're going to say some stupid things. But most everybody said some really nasty shit they could, they wish they could take back, but they can't take back or some nasty sex they had that they wish they could take back and all sorts of things. The way we raised our kid was I perfect in the 20 years I raised children? I said some stuff I wish I could take back and did some stuff and neglected some stuff. You know, I got I got regrets in every pie. If you ask mm-hmm. me, you know, if I took my psilocybin magic mushrooms today, I'd probably have my 10 Zen masters come on and say, hey, it's been a while since you reviewed all the times you were a jerk, yeah. so let's do that now and you can cry for another four hours or something. So I'm just saying it's tough in the modern era to have opinions and to not have really thick skin, too thick a skin to tip, to let mobs and d- different opinions and people who hate you and all these sort of things. Because anybody who's anybody's got haters in this day and age. In the old days, you didn't necessarily have a hater because they'd either have to stalk you in person, which would be very difficult and expensive, or they could send you letters, which you could choose to ignore. I mean, in the old days, you could have your privacy. It would be very difficult for an ordinary person to interrupt your privacy in reality. Mm-hmm. But now it's possible for a million people to interrupt your privacy or you know, photograph you. Alec Baldwin has a funny story. He says, you know, I miss the old days when people used to come to you sheepishly up to you in a restaurant and say, uh, Mr. Baldwin, I'm sorry to interrupt your meal here. I really appreciate it that you're even talking to me. Can you sign this autograph? And he'd say, yeah, an autograph. And so he'd do a couple of those and people would go away and he could have, enjoy his meal. He says, now they just sit in the next table and they film my whole meal. So I don't have any privacy at all. They're just going over their shoulder saying, I'm right beside Alec Baldwin and I'm filming him and it's like awesome. And like Alec Baldwin therefore knows that his his entire fucking lunch is being filmed, right? And he has no privacy. And he said, you know, I miss the old days, right? And that's, that's true for all of us, right? We yeah. could all be surveilled and followed and, and have our thing. So if we're going to start worrying about what people said 10 years ago, 15 years ago, some nasty shit stuff they said or did and what have you. Well, imagine living in a world where you can be recorded 24 hours a day and people can release shit on you at any point in the future and you have no idea who's filming you and recording you and what they might want now or later. Right? That's why it's really healthy if we encourage everybody to reject and correct in the present tense. Mm-hmm. If you object to something, bring it up. If you are rejecting a man, do it now. If you want to correct a man or a woman or anybody or a child, do it now. It's not going to help in five or 10 years. Yeah. Right? We don't learn those lessons. You know, all, the only point to bring something up five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years later is to humiliate and shame someone. And maybe they deserve being shamed. Maybe they deserve being humiliated. But in my experience, that's not how you achieve healthy objectives by shaming and humiliating information. It's correction uh, and rejection. Just explain to someone what's going on. Why do they do it? Why do you do it? Oh, I do it because I'm hoping to influence the greater audience of uh-huh. ordinary citizens, of would-be movers and shakers. Plus, I still have an obligation to represent our people no matter how cynically inclined about the system I am. 
right? It's one thing for me to tell you in an interview that they don't pay any attention. That's a fact. They've never done it. They've never added anything. But it's an entirely another one to say that the whole process is futile. Don't talk to anybody. Don't try and do anything. Live life on the underground. Well, that's not for other people. You know, that's not something I want to, a legacy I want to leave Canadians. So mm-hmm. I have to do everything in my power to try and do something to set a good example and to create an environment where dress just can eventually come out into the light and thrive and stuff like that. So, you know, I've got... I've got stuff to do that's got to impress people. So when people say, I like your work, I'm trying to set an example of what any of us could do. If you're so motivated, it doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't even guarantee that anything good will come of it, but it's something. And, 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 And the thing is, most of our advances in liberty don't come from politics. They come from technology. Technology liberates us. Our cell phone has done far more for us than any kind of like active government's ever done about free speech, associating with who we want to, being close to it. It's aided and abetted government by making it easy for cops to find out what we're saying and doing and stuff like that, right? So two steps forward, one step back. You know, technology liberates us. The courts can liberate us. Our own activities will liberate us. Our choices or who we associate can liberate us, right? If we've got a lot of other fellow gay people or other vegetarians or other people like bike lanes, then we can get the critical mass necessary to make change happen. But change happening like a bike lane or some kind of special thing is not the same as getting liberty or freedom, right? Because they don't give us that. They only take that away. Government is always daily in the process of taking all our liberties and controlling them as they see our liberties to be. In other words, if we're riding a bicycle, they want to control where and how and when we can ride that bicycle and how we can ride it, right? Where it was made, how it was made, who can sell it to us, what taxes will be on it, right? And that's true with everything from the water we drink to the electricity we buy if it doesn't already come from a single you know, source government monopoly, um, the cars, how much they're going to be, what kind of environmental pollution is permitted, what kind of fossil fuel emissions, everything we do from this sweater I'm wearing, which is only allowed here because it conforms to trade agreements and a whole variety of things, probably adding a heap of cost to it as well, you know, $200 for a sweater, really, wow, Um, and so on. So, you know, you've just got to lead a good life, give a good example to people, and hopefully they'll find some wisdom or something in it that you've done and they can emulate it, and that's a good thing. So. But there's no guarantee of outcome. I I can't say we will be successful politically. All I can say is that the human struggle has always been trying to find liberty and autonomy and freedom from a very uh, voracious monolith and leviathan of a government Mm -hmm. that wants to control all humans under its purview. What do you think of uh, Julian Fantino um, starting his own business, plot business? Well, everybody's allowed to change their mind. And if he wasn't a cop, or for that matter, if he wasn't in a money-making industry, in other words, if he said, you know, I used to arrest people for marijuana, but now I've had a change of heart and I think people should use marijuana and I think it should be legal, that would be cool. I'd love to hear cops say that, right? But we're not really hearing cops ever say that. What they're saying is that I arrested people. I said terrible things about pot. I said it was uh, we should no more legalize marijuana than we should legalize murder only 10 years ago. I said I would never recommend legalizing marijuana. I certainly had lots of people arrested. 
if they'd have said that, but not said, now I'm going to make money doing what I put people in jail for. Okay. That's the element of hypocrisy of just, it's, it's unacceptable. It simply cannot be reconciled, right? He's allowed to change his mind. He cannot earn a living. No cop honorably can earn a living in the marijuana industry if they never opposed it while they were cops. And Fantino, not only did he never oppose it, he still has not really said anything about whether people should get charged or continue to be criminalized because he knows that other people who don't buy from one of his kind of licensed producers will in fact be con- charge will continue to be charged with having illicit cannabis or growing illicit cannabis or extracting illicit cannabis or passing illicit cannabis. So he knows that people are still going to get charged while he earns a living um, doing what he once condemned in the most strong terms. So no, I can't ever reconcile that. It's the worst of all the hypocrisies. But you got premiers, Ernie Eves and Mike Harcourt, premiers of Ontario and BC are part of it now. They're, they're part of it. You've got cops, you've got RCMP commissioners, you've got chiefs of police, the, the second in command for the chief of police and the deputy chief is now with a marijuana company. Uh, the deputy chief of Toronto here, Carrie something other, Bill Blair's old so deputy it's, chief. It's a government monopoly. Well, all these government... Even as private citizens. Even right? as private citizens, a shock. John Turner, former prime minister, is on one of these ones. Uh, Cash Heat, a former MLA from BC and a chief of police of West Vancouver, is on one of these ones. They are totally, utterly infiltrated by cops, politicians, and various government... Why do you think that is? Because those people, in order to seek credibility will pay a ridiculous amount of money for those people just to rep for them who don't have to do anything. I'm sure Julian Fantino doesn't have to do any work from now on as part of that company because he's already done it. He's got them their press release. He's got them their publicity, their face. He's got, he's the kind of guy you can introduce to serious investors. After all, what former chief of police is going to do something illegal, right? So it's all a way for the big money people to cash in using all these establishment fears who wants to press people as figureheads in order to attract other money and bigger investors and that sort of thing. So, is there's no room for um, like a private citizen well, to can, enter this? But industry. you're going to need millions. The smallest kind of licensed producer could get off the ground with about two to three million dollars. But that's not easy. That's not a small amount. I mean, right now on the illegal market, you for twenty thousand dollars you could set up a grow room and start doing marijuana. But the government's ridiculous regulations are onerous, unnecessary, and are deliberately geared so that only people with millions of dollars will be permitted through the process. They're the only people that can afford it. Oh, they so they need. Um, yeah, you to take to, their cut. You got to build, build big buildings with huge security on a lot of land. It requires you to buy the land, put on big buildings, have a security apparatus. It requires you to hire too many people, too many cameras, too much fencing. It just requires millions of dollars of. If it's legal, for God's sake, why do you need all that security? What's going on? You know, do we have tomatoes and cucumbers being grown under this environment? They're legal too. I don't see that. We grow tobacco outside. It's legal and barely. So why does all this need to grow marijuana indoors and under all this severe security if it's going to be legal? It should just be grown everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right, but the thing is, there's they can't control us if they give us the, the opportunity to just grow it. If they really legalize it the way they should, 
it would be the antithesis of everything government stands for. And government stands for prohibition and control. Mm -hmm. And anytime they have to give us freedom, they don't do so willingly, and they're not doing it now. They're giving us the most jaded, cynical, so-called legalization in an Orwellian way. It's 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 really prohibition 2.0, but they're mm -hmm. calling it legalization. The reason this happened, by the way, is because the government lost control of the narrative. In other words, the prohibition was in such disrepute. People like me were opening up stores. We had 20 cannabis cultures opened up and people were loving it. My shop on Church Street had 1,700 to 2,000 people every day coming to our shop. They loved it. But if the government would have allowed that to stay open much longer, people would consider that the proper permanent model mm -hmm. instead of the horrible one they're going to get exposed to. And so all along I was saying, this is what legalization looks like. And I was totally right. That's what real legalization would look like. Anybody can open a store and sell pot that people love grown by people who love to grow it, sold by people who love to sell it, bought by people who love to smoke it. Perfect relationship. Never had complaints. I told people this is the best marijuana you're going to buy anywhere in the world, bar none. And if you don't agree with me, I'll give your money back. No one ever asked for well, money back. So what, do you, what is it going to take to get to that system? Well, it's going to require people to keep breaking the law, people to complain about the government shops, people to not buy at the government shops, people to continue to patronize the black market, the, which is the free market, right? The government's controlled market. I don't know what you're going to call that, the, 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 the bad market, because few people are going to enjoy the experience. It's going to be a long way to go to get to a stop, shop. There, and not only that, anything controlled by the government is going to be the last thing to see any kind of advances or technology or product you know, pro pro progressions. There's just no competition. Uh, yeah, in other words, it, w it will move ahead so dramatically in the United States and Nevada and California where it's genuinely legal and that they welcome development and innovation and science. Well, here it's going to get stifled utterly, totally, and completely. That's... Oh, man. Um, sorry, because like, you're the Canadian pot guy, so... This is maybe your reputation at stake. Hey, you gotta, you gotta it, give it your this all. Is, this is, it reminds me of that thing that Obi Wan would say. If I could paraphrase him, this isn't the legalization you're looking for. Yeah. This one can go right um, because this is not the legalization I was looking for. This is a horrible, perverted, bad version of it. But you know what? We're still gonna make the best. We're still gonna break the law. We're still gonna law change. Mm -hmm. The courts will rule in our favor. It's gonna be good. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. Um. How how do you how do you smoke weed and be an effective person? Well, to me, you know, if you buy into the idea that marijuana impairs you, you're gonna have problems. See, I don't mm. accept that marijuana impairs you. If marijuana impaired you, I wouldn't advocate for it. I wouldn't smoke something that impaired me. I don't know who's trying to put stuff in their body that deliberately impairs them. Even I stop at one drink. Um, always one glass of wine or one beer if I'm ever drinking because I like the buzz, but I don't want to be impaired. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that alcohol does impair you. But there's no amount of THC in my system that would impair me. If I felt like I had too much THC, I just wouldn't get in a car, right? You That would be automatic. Oh, I don't feel good. I'm not going to get in a car, right? So I don't consider marijuana something that impairs people. And if they do have this feeling that marijuana impairs you, then we cannot agree. I can't, because it's like you and I, if you don't, if you look at an apple and don't see the same apple as I do, like if I look at an apple and I see a citrus fruit that's kind of tangy and tart, and you look at it and see a mushy, alkaline-y, uh, you know, cylindrical thing, you're, and I think, are you talking about a banana? No, that's an apple. And then we, we can't, 
we can't discuss the apple because we don't accept the the limitations and 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 factual analysis going on. Oh, so if yeah. someone says I think marijuana impairs you and I don't believe it impairs you, and you're not going to be able to prove to me it impairs you because there is no proof that it impairs people. When you see how people are when they drive, they're just as good a driver okay, after they well, smoke pot mm-hmm. as if they hadn't. I guess I'm talking about the killing of motivation element but it shouldn't do that uh-huh. if you don't have if you smoke pot and you have no motivation after that then that's your true state you don't have any motivation uh-huh. because if you had a motivation the first thing you do would be to not smoke pot if that's the problem if if pot is getting in the way of your motivation then you don't have any because you're smoking pot if you had motivation you would say well i'll smoke that at the end of the day when i don't need to do anything I'll wait till I'm done all my stuff and I'll smoke pot then. But if you're smoking pot now to sabotage your daily agenda, then you don't want to do that agenda or you would do it. Whatever We always get whatever we want in life. Whatever we seek, we will find. You know, and I, that's true with me. You know, people, some, there was an old thing. If you're looking for trouble, that's what you'll find. Well, I've been looking for trouble a lot of my life and I have found a lot of it. Right. So, um, but I don't accept that marijuana impairs you. I think marijuana makes you self-aware so that you become a more acutely aware parent, a more acutely aware driver, a more acutely aware viewer of videos or television. You become uh, a better parent. Uh, I think you're a better athlete too. I speak to lots of athletes who tell me they have a superior performance potential when they, when they consume cannabis. What do you prefer sativa or indica or hybrid Uh, those are not relevant distinctions any longer uh no sativa uh, is consistent i'm sure that if we had 50 strains here there are sativas that would respond identical to indicas and by now they are so mixed up and so why is it irrelevant because you just never know what's an indica or what's a sativa really and you don't really know what that means for example if you put Um, some resin under a microscope Mm -hmm. and look at it or break it down and put it in a chromospectrometer and look at its uh, ingredients, uh, a a sativa bud that's 10% THC is going to look pretty well identical Mm -hmm. to an indica bud at 10% THC. Um, All you're going to break it down to is cannabinoids, CBD, CBN, THC. Well, what if a sativa bud is identical in its chromospectrometer analysis as an indica bud? What are you going to conclude? Are they identical? Or is there something we don't see uh, that's having an infect? In other words, what is the indica and the sativa element when yeah. it comes down to its constituents? So, well, isn't that one of the selling points of dispensaries? You get variety. And- yeah, well, we used to have what we would call indicas and sativa, and by and large, I believe they were correct. But nonetheless, when you and analyze a bud, it, there's no indica measure and there's no sativa measure. It's just all breaks down to THC, CBD, CBN. So in other words, I think you can get a sativa bud that would analyze exactly identically to uh, an indica mm. bud. And and I would ask, well, then what's the difference? If, an, if you break it down and this indica bud has the identical THC, CBD, CBN as the sativa bud, then when, how are they distinguished? How do we distinguish what Maybe sativa is? Maybe the symptoms is, are what I should point out then, like uppers and downers, or like mind high versus right. body high. Right, well, these high. are convenient shortcuts if you uh-huh. want some kind of like to way it. to explain it. Yeah. But I, I, I just don't think those explain anything anymore. So, so then how would you explain the effects of weed on the body? 
Well, they make you more self-aware. That self-aware can have a lot of different interpretations. You can become sexually self-aware. You can become introspectively philosophical self-aware. But there's you also can, the body eye. Right. Yeah. Well, that happens through your eyes. So you're watching videos and that thing. Or you're jerking off to pornography and that has its impact. Or you're playing sports and you're feeling the ball. Um, so the way you see things, taste things, hear things, feel things, the way your muscles respond, all these different things are going to have... Uh, fascinating and varied reactions. And in fact, uh, you know, if we ask people truly meaningfully, what is the reason, the number one reason you smoke pot, we would get an incredibly wide pain relief. Uh, I relax, I feel better. I don't necessarily know why I feel better, but I feel better, you know, like a lot of different things, or I perform better. Um, I'm more comfortable in my own skin, et cetera, et cetera. There's a million different reasons, and they're all perceptions of how we're seeing the world. Yeah, and that's another, and responding to the world. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to point out is that that um, that mainstream um, notion of what a pot smoker is is that drum circle hippie guy. Yeah, that's really not the case anymore. Well, he, he that's the case in an isolated incident. If you're down on Wreck Beach or down <laughs> on, the, on Third Beach in yeah. Vancouver or Sunset Beach on a Tuesday night, that's where the drum circle is, and you'll uh -huh. see those people there. And there's lots of them. They come out to their event, but there's, but you know that's not everybody in the in the pot community. And you see that when you see all these convent expos and conventions where people in suits are there. Yeah, I'm and like all these business people are there. I'm I'm always like, you're a rich guy. How are you always like hi? You know what I mean? I always equate yeah. like high people or like, sorry, like baked people, yeah. whatever, as like inefficient. Yes, but, th but see, that's a cliche that was started it by is. Tommy Chong and Cheech and Chong. Ooh. And that's the only reason that persists. Typically, that's interesting. Um, while we have this cliched stereotype, and the most people are quite geniusy that are into pot. For example, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were potheads. I mean, every major musical creator, Bob Marley, Jimmy Page, right. you know, uh, the Beatles, all these people were potheads, right? And then you go through the black musicians, the jazz musicians, uh, half the country western stars smoke pot. All the pot. creatives. Uh, all the young ones smoke pot. Yeah, and then you get to science and architectural fields and filmmaking, movie making, tremendous amount of pot, entertainers, who smoke pot, comedians who smoke pot, and so on and so on it goes. Um, you know, I have a contention that the, the greatest contributions to humankind of the last 50 to 75 years have come from gay men, Jews, and pot people. I would think they have given the world more wonderful, creative, beautiful things in science, art, technology, philosophy, communications, uh, than any other groups of people i just think and they're all oppressed they're all the jews gay men and pot people have all been hunted down and had some very bad things happen to them two and a half million in canada arrested uh, 27 million in the united states staggering numbers uh of oppression and gay men have suffered like that historically too in the past and still do in many parts of the world and jews have always suffered uh, that that is the most inexplicable you know, like I can even, you know, potheads and, and gay men, yes, we do stuff that's unorthodox of people, but I don't know why people don't, never like Jews. It's weird, mm -hmm. right? What's, you know, that's what do they, they got? 138 Nobel Prizes and they only constitute like 0.0005% of the population. Yeah. Or something. That's pretty amazing, right? Um, so anyway, you know, I, I think we are, 
one of the uh, an oppressed people historically mm-hmm. and we can make a good uh case that we are very similarly treated to other persecuted groups gay men and and jewish people great contributors to the world great things they've given the world that made the world a better place and they suffered for it and i think that's true with our culture so too. the the fight well your fight is kind of everyone's fight yeah but it's but it but it's also my fight, fight liberty too, though, because everybody has their own reasons for doing stuff so yeah, your true. reasons and my reasons may not be the same but hopefully we can overlap and work together to achieve something that's right hey it's been fun on your show yeah thank you mark yeah i really appreciate it yeah um i don't know how the hell this happened but thank you um god or, sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no uh i don't know why i did that i'm getting awkward I'm there trying you to go. talk to the camera. You've been spiritually aroused. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's as good a reason. That's what pot does. Hopefully you come back and we could talk about Yeah, Ayn no Rand. problem. I'm going to court um, oh, on yeah. December 4th. Um, I should uh, have concluded my uh, my many charges by December. Going to the Supreme Court on the 6th, 7th, they'll oppose these government monopolies. We'll, I'll be at uh, uh, Queen's Park with Jody on the 29th to 30th, testifying before the Justice Committee awesome. on uh, terrorist pot bill 174. And as you could expect, Jody and I will be doing whatever we can to advance the interests of our people. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, welcome. For all your service. Have a good night. Too bad, too late.